Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Jeremy Frank, LA Opera's associate chorus master, is actually a man of many talents, conductor, pianist, educator, and mixologist. He is certainly the delightful host of LA Opera Connect's popular Opera Happy Hour web series. When you have time, you'll want to check out LA Opera's website at www.laopera.org, where you can find an entire library of Opera Happy Hour episodes, in which Jeremy invites us to join in the fun of learning about opera and your beverage of choice. Cheers. Hi, my name is Jeremy Frank, and I'm happy to welcome you to Opera Happy Hour. Today, we're going to explore a more global continuum of how dance plays an integral part in the art form of opera. Now, dance is as old as humanity itself. And in fact, we could say that dance represents people's first, first language. If you've ever met new parents starting their babies with sign language before they're even able to speak, it's obvious that gesture, and by extension dance, are hardwired into the very seeds of our human existence. And while dance represents a kind of universal human language, one beautiful mystery about it is that 99% of the time, dance is inextricably bound to music. In fact, the ancient Greeks had a single word for both dance and poetry, musike, which meant the art of the muses. Looking at opera today, it's easy to get the impression that opera singers simply park and bark or fix themselves in one position so that they can accomplish the Herculean feat of singing opera. Really, the art form's roots are not like that at all. In the early Baroque era, everyone was expected to sing and act and dance equally well. Nowadays, we would call a performer like Audra McDonald, who can do all three of those things very easily, a triple threat. But as the earliest operas by Monteverdi and Cavalli can attest, this idea is as old as the art form itself. It is part and parcel of the all-encompassing magic that opera can create when it's at its finest. The term dance itself can conjure up some very limiting images. Maybe you imagine dancing at the club like I do, or perhaps uh, you're thinking about classical dance uh, and you think about men dressed in tights and ballerinas in tutus. Maybe performance art springs to mind with performers scooping and slicing their way through space in avant-garde ways. The truth is, dance is all of that and a lot more, and all of it finds its way into opera. Today, we'll continue to explore a continuum from the most simple and abstract kinds of dance, where, quote-unquote, a dance is simply a dance, without any kind of story to tell, to the other end of the spectrum entirely, where every physical gesture and every breath blurs the line between choreography and acting, and where every move furthers the narrative of the story from the composer's point of view. In this kind of aesthetic, if you can't tell whether something was decided by the choreographer or the director, that's the whole point. Our motto at LA Opera is that we are greater than the sum of our arts. That means that everything about the art form, the dance, the music, the orchestra, the chorus, the set design, the painting, the props, the costumes, the lighting, all of it is a collaboration on a massive scale. 
It's what makes opera so very powerful. And when we work in an environment like that, it's critical for us to learn to translate our own ideas to someone else's language so that we can arrive at common goals together. I seem to have arrived at my toast before I told you about drink pairing. I'll be having a whiskey sour, the old-fashioned kind with pasteurized egg, because it is a drink that is better than the sum of its parts. So let me propose a toast. To arriving at common goals together so that we can be greater than the sum of our parts. Cheers. The first stop on our continuum is dance as divertisement, which is just a fancy way of saying dance as a source of diversion or entertainment. In other words, this is the kind of dance that pretty much just looks like dance. Sometimes these little dance breaks last for as few as two or three minutes. They are completely ubiquitous throughout the operatic repertoire. There's a dance break at the beginning of the party scene in Verdi's La Traviata, and in the modern opera uh, by Carlisle Floyd, Susanna, set in the South, there's an actual square dance. Uh, you've got the mashup of dances from Mozart's Don Giovanni. Mozart wrote quite a few dances and was a fantastic dancer himself. I thought we would mine his music with this excerpt from The Marriage of Figaro to demonstrate this kind of dance as pure entertainment. In the opera, toward the end of Act 3, the time of Susanna and Figaro's wedding finally arrives. There's a big wedding party going on, the chorus sings some happy tunes, and Figaro and Susanna share their first dance. As the wedding guests join in the dancing, the music suddenly goes from a happy major key to a shadowy minor key, and Mozart does something rather remarkable. He lets us, the audience, overhear Figaro and the Count's inner monologues. Figaro comments to himself as the Count receives a note requesting a romantic rendezvous and laughs at the awkwardness of his master. The Count, for his part, thinks he's outsmarted Figaro and brokered a secret affair with Figaro's new bride, Susanna. The graceful dance continues going the whole time. The next stop on our continuum is dance that focuses mostly on the emotional undertone of the dramatic scene it's part of. If you know the opera Zolome, based on the provocative play by Oscar Wilde, you know that there is a very infamous dance, the Dance of the Seven Veils. By playing the first part of this excerpt, and only the first part, I also get a chance to demonstrate one of the biggest differences between how dancers and musicians understand music. 
We musicians count the number of beats in a measure of music, but dancers count the number of beats in an entire musical phrase. When music is predictable, this is a pretty easy gap to bridge. But when you have music pushing at the very edges of sanity, even the phrases themselves evade normal patterns. When we produced Salome a few seasons ago, the brilliant choreographer Peggy Hickey, who, by the way, has been a part of the L.A. opera family as a dancer, a choreographer, and an assistant director since the very beginning of the company. Uh, I've known her for many years now. Uh, she worked on L.A. opera's Grammy-winning Ghosts of Versailles, and she also worked on the Tony Award-winning uh, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder. She's been amazing and an absolutely invaluable help to me as I researched today's show. Anyway, uh, she and I had to kind of invent a dance calculus so that the singer and dancers could remember when to go where in the choreography to this very crazy music. Seven, eight, nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. On the far end of our spectrum of how dance is used in opera, we end up at dance as gestalt, which is a term used in psychology meaning an organized whole that is perceived as more than the sum of its parts. Tricky what I did there, huh? In this approach, dance is the very living tapestry that highlights, reinforces, and depicts the music to the point that no gesture distracts from the whole. The first example that I'd like to play from this kind of dance comes from the opera Orphée et Eurydice by Gluck, which LA Opera co-produced with Chicago's Joffrey Ballet in 2018, with choreography by the legendary John Neumeyer. If you happen to have caught a different opera, uh, the world premiere of Matthew O'Coin's opera Eurydice, you know that both these uh, operas have to do with the myth of Orpheus descending into Hades to charm the keepers of the underworld so that his newly deceased wife can return to the land of the living. That's actually all the plot that you need to know. What I do want to point out, though, is this. Gluck's writing alternates between songs with singing and strict ballet music with no words. And yet, in the production that we did in 2018, dance and singing are two sides of the same storytelling coin. 
One of the most famous dances is the Dance of the Blithe Spirits, which is famous for um, this beautiful flute solo, which I'll play on my right hand. And uh, you can sense that the depiction of Hades is not something to be feared in this production, um, always. Uh, there is some scary music, but in this excerpt, you'll see that the afterlife is a place of peace and serenity. One of the most grand-scale operas that thrives when dance is used in this gestalt approach is Aida, which, interestingly, is a piece about ancient Egypt, which was commissioned from Verdi by the actual Khedive of Egypt in the late 1860s. Dance is featured prominently in Aida, and I'd like to play two excerpts that highlight the ceremony, pomp, and pageantry of ancient Egypt. The first excerpt comes from the end of Act One in the Temple of Vulcan, where priests and priestesses invoke the god of creation, Ptah, to protect their warriors going into battle. As I play the dance of the sacred priestesses, you may notice some very unusual scales. We musicians would call them modes, but they follow different patterns than our Western European scales. Verdi uses them to depict ancient Egypt and its exotic rituals. At the very end of the dance, however, Verdi can't help but inadvertently reveal his Catholic roots by writing this perfectly straightforward Amen cadence.
Next, I'd like to play an excerpt that depicts the triumphant return of the Egyptian army after battle. The excerpt sounds something like this. In the show, this is a massive procession with all the grandeur that can be possibly unleashed. The ballet is actually quite long, but it starts with a famous recognizable tune known as the Triumphal March. One interesting aspect of this excerpt is that Verdi spared no expense and orchestrated this melody for two groups of three Egyptian trumpets. You can imagine my right hand as trumpety as it can be. I think it's clear which side of the continuum I'm biased towards. So I really uh, think dance is better when it forms a part of a gestalt. And actually not just dance. I think music is better and acting is better when it all serves a greater uh, overarching purpose. And you, dear audience, play a part in that too, both uh, when we're in the theater, and especially now when we are not in the theater. In the meantime, stay healthy, stay happy, and cheers. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.